Hello and welcome to MPB's Ad Issue, where we discuss and debate the issues facing the Mississippi legislature. I'm Michael Guidry. Hundreds of thousands of Mississippians who lack health care coverage may soon be eligible thanks to legislation that will be introduced in the state Senate on Monday. On Thursday afternoon, Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman announced plans to expand coverage for the working poor, those who currently earn too much to qualify for Medicaid, but too little to afford private health insurance. Hoseman explained that providing health insurance would increase workforce participation, which is currently the lowest in the nation. We in Mississippi have dropped to about a 53.9 percent, I think the lowest in the country, of our people putting 16 and 65 or so are actually working now. And part of that is we're not healthy. And uh, I, I believe that keeping us healthy in that 16 to 64 bracket, you know, your major income years, keeping us healthy is a critical component to raising the labor force participation rate. And when they're working, people um, buy homes, uh, help raise their families, uh, uh, are productive members of society, uh, pay taxes, uh, all those kinds of things that we, we would hope every American could espouse to. While Hoseman declined to describe the measure as Medicaid expansion, the proposed legislation could add almost a quarter of a million Mississippians to the Medicaid rolls. Governor Tate Reeves, who has adamantly opposed any form of Medicaid expansion, calling it welfare, has not issued a response as of midday Friday. On next week's that issue, we'll focus on the Medicaid issue with a detailed analysis of the new legislation and its implications for changing the face of health care delivery across Mississippi. Also, be sure to tune in to MPB's Mississippi Edition Monday morning at 8.30 for more of our interview with Lieutenant Governor Hoseman. On Tuesday, the state honored a legislator who served her constituents through no less than 39 legislative sessions. Alice Clark, a Democrat from Jackson, was the first African-American woman to serve in the Mississippi legislature when she was elected in 1985. She retired at age 84 after the 2023 session, but was back at the Capitol this week for the unveiling of her portrait. We asked Ms. Clark about the changes she witnessed during her four decades of service. Well, what I've seen is that I've seen the, the, the complexion of the body has changed. Fortunately, we now have more women in the legislature. When I got there, there were three women in the legislature. And now we have 19 women, which is not where it needs to be, but it's at least better than it was. Lawmakers praise Clark's work in creating the state's first drug courts, being an early voice for a state lottery, and for her tireless efforts on behalf of public education. Her portrait's permanent home will be in the House Education Committee room, where Ms. Clark served as vice chair for many years. Lawmakers in the House are expected to introduce legislation dealing with felony disenfranchisement, whereby convicted felons permanently lose their voting rights. Mississippi currently takes away the voting rights of felons convicted of any of 22 different crimes. Some might agree with a murderer permanently losing voting rights, but what about crimes like timber theft or receiving stolen property? There appears to be bipartisan support for a constitutional amendment changing the current restrictions. Mississippi's felony disenfranchisement law is currently being challenged in the courts. Here's Paloma Wu from the Mississippi Center for Justice. There are two cases that are still pending in the federal court system, but Mississippi legislators taking it upon themselves to address you know, this issue that the vast majority of Mississippians 
um, believe should be addressed. Um, is the best of all possible scenarios because the courts are really just, you know, backup if we can't solve our own problems. But I, I, I believe the best thing is if, if we take this into our own hands. This is At Issue on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. Each week we have an in-depth conversation with a key player involved in the 2024 legislative session. This week we're joined by House Minority Leader Robert Johnson of Natchez. Welcome to At Issue, Representative Johnson. Thank you for having me. Uh, Glad to be here. Thank you. I'm going to start here. Um, You were House Minority Leader um, during Speakership uh, Philip Gunn. You're currently House Minority Leader under the new leadership of uh, Speaker Jason White. What's that change been like, the, the, this, this first kind of part of the session? Well, it's been a little bit of more of the same and a little bit different. Okay. <laughs> the uh, little bit different has been this, the uh, current speaker came in, uh, and I think his intention is still the same, and that is is to have more bipartisan work. Uh, and I can tell you that uh, when, I fir- when Speaker Gunn first got elected, he did the same thing. Uh, I was chairman of transportation under uh, Speaker Gunn and got a lot of things done for my community and for the whole state of Mississippi that hadn't been done before. Uh, Jason White, though, in terms of issues, he he intends he he has told me and he has presented himself as being less polarized on on a number of issues. And, you know, main main the main one being Medicaid expansion, which is a big issue here. So I'm hopeful about that now. The part that has been kind of more of the same has been he promised to be a little bit more transparent. I haven't seen as much of that as I'd like. Uh, we, we've we had two economic development bills that have kind of been, wasn't his fault, but shoved down our throats, so to speak. And then uh, the most disappointing thing was what we did with the ballot initiative. That was a surprise from what I saw on the floor. It was, ab- it was an absolute surprise. Uh, Speaker White actually came to our caucus and talked to us. We had a really good exchange. And one of the things he actually said to us is that on initiative referendum, he said to us that I intend to come out with a clean bill. Well, it was anything but a clean bill. And I talked to him about it, and he said as much as he wanted to, there was just an overwhelming uh, move in his own caucus to do it that way. It wasn't necessarily his preference. But he does lead the Republican caucus, so uh, I would— I would have rather seen him stand up and say, no, we're not doing it. But they did it. And but that bill is still alive and a lot of work to be done. If it comes back, I hope we get a chance to fix it. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to you know, spend a large, large portion of the time on on that that bill, that ballot initiative bill. But watching that on the floor, uh, the, the the presentation in defense of the bill seemed a lot of, well, this is just what we have. This is what will get us moving forward to the Senate. And so um, based on what you just said about like wanting being promised a clean bill and wanting to see a clean bill, um, you know, does that part of the process like create frustration? Yeah, it does. Cr- it, it creates frustration because last year the Senate was the was the House that kept saying we need to put all these restrictions in the bill. We need to make sure we have more signatures. We, we need to make sure we have veto power, be able to overturn something we don't like. The House the House was the House that was the one that was saying, no, it doesn't need to be as restrictive. So for us to start out that way uh, was a little was disappointing. It, we, You know, I anticipated getting a bill back from the Senate with that kind of foolishness in it. I didn't expect to send one to them. And so I'm just hoping that maybe now the Senate and I heard uh, the Senate cha- has a change of heart. I've heard uh, 
on different occasions, I've heard the lieutenant governor say he thinks it ought to be a clean bill, uh, even though he seemed to agree that he was pro-life. I heard him on this program say, I'm pro-life, right. and so I don't have a problem with that part of it. But uh, the, the the Republicans in the House and the Senate say that they represent the people of the state of Mississippi, the majority of them, and they ask why they have a supermajority. And if you believe that, then you shouldn't be afraid of any issue. You would expect that the people who elected you would carry an issue that you support in the House of Representatives. Um, I want to get to some issues, but before we get there, I, I, I want to go. I want to take this route okay. just for a minute. Okay. We've talked a number of times over the years, going back to 2020, yeah. um, and the retirement of the, the 1894 flag. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I know that was something that you have sought for a, a long time. Right. But it felt like it sort of took this national momentum following the death of George Floyd to really get any meaningful conversations down at the Capitol. I know you focus a lot on issues. We've talked about Robert E. Lee Day um, in conjunction with Martin Luther King Day and Confederate Memorial Day. We've had those conversations. So my question is, is, is what challenge do you encounter getting Republicans to have more of those conversations like you did uh, about the flag? Because, you know, I know those don't solve any real issues, but at the same time, they are representative of, of the state. And how do you get them to engage in those in those conversations? Well, sometimes well, – uh, well, national pressure for sure happens. People ask me, why Why do you spend so much time talking, giving interviews with some of the national press? And, because I want, you know, we keep saying we want the state to grow. We want economic input from outside companies. And we want to look like we're a receptive state, that we've moved, you know, sort of into the new century, so to speak. And so what you'd hope is that people, that criticism from outside of the state for things like turning out $38 million to feed hungry children in the summertime. The summer EBT program, right? Yeah, summer EBT program. Uh, or there'd be some pressure to say, you know, you have the worst health outcomes in the country. How long are you going to go when you don't provide the kind of health care that, that the government is offering you to support? What, what will happen with that? And I can see that happening with Medicaid expansion. I didn't see the pressure being brought to bear on uh, – the uh, CRT and the diversity issues. Uh, Republicans and leadership in this state seem to revert back to, you know, the political division, so to speak, and and where they're going to wrap their arms around those kind of issues. But uh, I, I think it takes public pressure. You know, w- one of the most frustrating parts of, of my service and what I'm trying to do is I can't get some of my fellow legislators to read enough and and keep up to date on what the real issues are and to ferret them out. And even more frustrating is that the public doesn't do the in-depth reading where they can question like we need to. So people think, oh, you just you you, you do a lot of talk and you, you like talking to I said, no. My interest in making sure that I educate the public so they can raise these questions and they can ask. Okay. So I think that movement happens when more people understand what is happening at the Capitol, more people get involved. For instance, on these economic development issues, people are beginning to say to me, hey, I'm glad you brought that up. We do need to know how many jobs, how many real jobs are being created. We do do need to know if we're giving $50 million to a Chinese company, what kind of company is it? Uh, And is it something if it's supporting the Chinese government who may be involved in some uh, human rights violations that we need? Those kind of things are things that people are beginning to pay attention to. So you're just just trying to 
provide information as much as possible and hope there'll be some public pressure and, to and, and where those development projects are being prioritized because i know that's been for both of these big deals that was something that came loudly from from the um the minority caucus yeah i mean I, and look people say uh I'm not dis I'm not displeased that other people are getting jobs, but I cannot sit by and some my colleagues and I can't sit by. We live west of I-55. There has been no major ec- major economic development project west of I-55 from the Tennessee line to Louisiana line in 30 years. That is, you know, that's just unconscionable. They have we have the highest poverty rate, we have the highest uh unemployment rate, and we have the uh we have the highest uh or the the highest or the lowest doctor per patient ratio uh, in in the state, and all of that is driven by people moving out or people not they can't stay anywhere where they don't have opportunity to have jobs. We love our part of the, of the state. We love this state, and so to the extent that we can, we want to make sure that everybody has an opportunity. All our cities get a chance to grow instead of having a billboard in Greenville or Natchez and say, "Look, we're creating jobs in Madison County. We'd like for those people to stay where they are." The Republicans have them a supermajority, not just in your chamber, but the Senate also. So, um, you know, I know that makes really pushing Democratic priorities a challenge. Yeah. Um, where are some of the places where you're seeing the most uh, intersection with your Republican colleagues on on issues uh, that that can get resolved and legislation that can get passed that that appeases, you know, the, the, the policy priorities of both parties? Uh, Health care and infrastructure. And I and I say those two things because. Uh, I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. I think there are four things that people inherently really expect you to do as a government. They expect you to support and have adequate or, or better than adequate public safety. They expect you to do the same thing with public health, whether it be hospitals or health departments or providing opportunities for doctors to move into your area. Uh Public education. They want good schools. They they feel like that's the state's res- responsibility. And infrastructure, whether it be water and sewer, I mean, uh, or highways and or bridges and railway. And or now airport. broadband. And broadband. 40% of the state doesn't have broadband. They expect us to. Those are things that only government can do. Somebody said, well, what about health care? I said, health care is really the. Uh, you, you, it's, government is the only only entity that really can provide it on a level that it needs to be provided. Uh, And that's, you know, historically, I tell people, they say, well, why is it such a big deal? Why are hospitals suffering? When when the Hill-Burton Act was passed and they created public hospitals, they didn't create public hospitals all over the country. They didn't do that because it was profitable. They did it because it was a public service. And so you don't have county hospitals that the federal government has consistently for the last 60 years provided funding for because they make money. They did it because they feel like every community, no matter how poor, how rural, you should have your own hospital. And so those are the kind of things that government, I mean, that people uh, want us to do. Those are the kind of things that we're finding bipartisan support on. Now, you may not see publicly big locked arms, hurrah, you know, let's get it mm-hmm. together. But I can tell you on the floor of the House. We all are talking together about how we can do the, what we can do to solve these problems. Okay. And so what are some of the solutions, to, especially the infrastructure? I mean, we've seen the lottery bill um, that's now a few years old. And, and I, I think every year, except for its first year it, or maybe the pandemic year, it, I mean, it, it's met that 80 million dollar threshold for for roads and bridges. Uh, what other what other um, solutions are there to address well, infrastructure? Because, like you said, it's not just roads; it's it's water, it's sewage, it's broadband. Yeah. Well, I mean, just on roads, we have a three hundred million dollar 
underfunding for just for maintenance. 80 million sounds good, but we need about 220 million more. And quite frankly, the only way that we can do anything about that is to have a user fee, whether you call it gas tax or whatever you call it. it that's how you pay for roads. That's how we that's how we've always paid for them. The problem is the index for gas prices for road construction hasn't been risen, hasn't been raised up in 25 years. No. And so uh, unless we do something about that, we're still going to be underfunding and not getting roads. I mean, 28 to 29 percent of our roads and bridges in this state are either impassable or unsafe. And that's that's just not that's it's especially uh, problematic in a state that doesn't have a large mass transit system of any kind. So you got to have a way for people to go back and forth to work, uh, kids to get back and forth to school, uh, commerce to move. So we got to do those things. And so uh, the solution is we got to come up with a funding mechanism. And if we can't do it with the gas tax, we got to do it with something. So we got to do something about that. And all of the. You know, people talk about everybody. The big focus has been on the Jackson water and sewer issues. It's our largest city. But the truth is, every town, county in this state just about has 100 or 120 year old pipes that they're running water and sewer through. We just have to have a big, you know, push to get that done, which when we think about it, we have a big surplus. We got one-time money. We could do quite a bit of that with some of this ARPA and, and a surplus one-time money that we have, and we really should. Uh, and I hope we will continue to have discussions about what we can do to get that done. And the lieutenant governor um, has talked about that matching program that they did with a lot of those ARPA, uh, ARPA funds. I mean, is that something you, um, you're you on board with? Do you think that's a fair mechanism? I, I don't think that's a fair mechanism because, uh, uh, you know, I understand the concept. I understand, and I and I like the idea that he feels like there ought to be some individual responsibility on the pair on the part of these uh, municipalities and counties. But the truth of the, of the matter is that there are counties and cities in this state who whatever money that has come through the federal government that they've got direct funding for, they've already spent. And not and they didn't waste it. They used it to make right. things happen. And so we ought to continue to support them whether they have the uh, matching money or not. Uh, there are communities, there are cities that are rich enough and affluent enough that they could have the money to do that. That's fine. They probably don't need the state money. But in small towns like Fayette, Mississippi, or Port Gibson, where they, they say, well, I don't have any money to match it with, we still need those roads done. We need those bridges fixed. We ought to do all we can to help them. You, you brought up Port Gibson near, uh, nearby is, is, is Lorman. Yes. We know through some federal reporting now that HBCUs have been underfunded by the states. Yeah. Um, is there, I mean, is there a mechanism in place? Or is there, is there conversations in place to, to address that legislatively? Uh, one of my colleagues, Jeffrey Harner, is not, I signed on to the bill with him, has introduced legislation to have direct appropriation given to Alcorn for that sum since they've been underfunded to that, to that degree. Uh, and all I can tell you is that we're having conversations. Uh, we don't know how far that's going to go. The state is, has never been very interested or, or seem to be very energetic about the idea of just, you know, okay, you're wrong, write the check. They haven't done that. Uh, we hope in this instance they feel some reasonableness and, and some willingness to do at least let's get started with a partial payment and, and, and a, a, a promise to pay over time if you don't want to write a check directly right now. But we, we should definitely do something. And then saying in the vein of education, um, it, there is, at least from the perspective of conservative policy think tanks, uh, a push for 
uh, an expansion of the scholarship account, um, you know, and kind of really opening up full school school choice. Um, there's a case that the Supreme Court is considering right now, uh, or arguments were last week regarding how appropriations from the legislature can you know, can go to public or private schools. Uh, what is uh, what is the position as as minority leader? What's the position in the House with the De- House Democrats when it comes to um, education funding? What is and isn't copacetic to you? To well, you? what's not copacetic is using private, I mean, public money to fund private schools. Uh, and uh, my perspective is probably a little bit uh, different. Well, maybe not so different. I mean, I grew up in an area. I, I, I was bused in 1968 to a school to integrate the school and the integration. The, and their best their best effort at that time was to put all the black kids on the bottom floor and all the white kids on the top floor. That's that's what they called it. But it also saw a proliferation of private schools erected for the fo- sole purpose of, you know, ma- uh, maintaining segregation. And so I, I've never had. I don't begrudge anybody. My my children went to private school for at least half of their education. Uh, so and we paid for that. But public schools were built because there was so too many kids in this country. The public education program was established. Too many kids in the country and especially in the state of Mississippi who were not getting an education. So the, the government provided that because they wanted to make sure that no matter where a kid lived, no matter where a child was, that we provide the resources for you to have a education no matter how poor you were how rich you were, you got the same, you got treated the same way in the classroom. I don't think that needs to change. And it, and it will change if you start giving pri- public money to private schools instead of taking the money you need to take and fully fund schools that need the help. Uh, without even talking about MAEP, let's just talk about it's not hard to figure out what schools don't have, what, what school systems don't have the avalorum base, the tax base to fund schools at a level that will make sure that the children are getting all the, all the things that a facility should offer. And so once we identify what the, who, who those programs are, what, they, what their needs are, and meet them, and my, let me tell you something. Anybody that tells you that those needs can be met with anything but money is just not telling the truth. So we, don't, we can't afford to take that money and give it to somebody else until, until we fix the schools that need our help. And so I don't believe it, that we ought to take that money and enlarge the scholarship program. Now, it, short of giving money to fix those problems, we there are concepts like community schools and those kind of things that we, we ought to look at to see how we can improve. Community schools just means getting more people in the community involved, helping fund that kind, kind of a process where, where teachers won't have to buy all the paper towel and cleaning equipment mm-hmm. and those kind of things. It just brings everybody, businesses, community, parents, teachers, friends, partners, all involved in creating an environment that you have a great school. We can do more of that. But short of that, we need to make sure that we address the funding inadequacies across the state before we start talking about, well, they're in a bad school district. We just give them the money. They can go, you know, they can go to another school district. It's still up to that other school district to say whether or not they're going to accept the child. Mm-hmm. And they they will pick and choose who they want. Right, Just like right now, you, there are a lot, of, a lot of public school children that are going to private schools, but they're going to athletic scholarships. And that, you'll see a lot of that. Instead of that athletic scholarship being funded by the school, they'll take state money and bring these athletes and take them away from public schools. So we shouldn't do that. Real, real quick, um, we're, I think, 10 years now into the early learning collaboratives. Um, what's your assessment of that? 
I think it's a. I think they're good programs, but I think we should have a closer look at the numbers. Uh, I don't know if it applies to the early learn, learning collaboratives, but one of the things that, you know the governor talks about how scores have improved and more graduation, but nobody talks about how many kids have been are repeating the grade. You know, one of the things about third grade reading is that uh, you know. If you don't pass the test, you got to go back and do it again. Mm-hmm. So some of those numbers are skewed by the fact that some of these kids are repeating the grade and coming and doing it again. But as a concept, the, the, the collaborative and all those things, I think, are important and they work. Uh, we just need to I, I, we just an, another point. We have more joint hearings to talk about what's actually happening and what are the outcomes and how, how we can improve on them. All right. Um, another real quick one, taxes. We've talked before. Governor is still pushing for an elimination of the income tax. Um, we've heard from some members of your party who say, if anything gets cut, let's cut the da- the grocery tax. Where are you? I know we've, we've talked before how you said we're really not in the position to really be cutting anything. Uh, you still take the same my, by that? My position hasn't changed. My position hasn't changed. I, I was just in Natchez dealing with a young man who has a mental health issue. We, we, tr- we can't find a place for him to go. And when I when I talk about when I talk to the legislature about the fact that we need to put more money into mental health, we need to have more facilities, more experts, more professionals. Uh, Everybody tells we just don't have enough money. Well, if we don't have enough money to to address a very dire need in this state, we certainly don't have enough money to cut taxes. And the last thing I have is kind of kind of bring everything full circle. It's been reported that uh, the speaker has uh, tapped some members to kind of to, to, to write a bill, file a bill uh, that addresses the the state's disenfranchisement. Um, when it comes to something like addressing disenfranchisement in Mississippi, considering the whole reason it was written into code, yeah, um, how important are those transparency pieces when it comes to working with you and House Democrats on on drafting a bill that is that that is going to you know, affect the lives of uh, convicted felons who are released for crimes that, you know, if you look at the list, you know, some might say that that penance is done. Uh, well, I'm 100 percent in favor of that. If you serve your time, you've paid your penance, uh, you should be able to have your rights restored. We've been offering legislation to that effect for 20 or 25 years. Uh, and so. I'm glad to hear that the speaker and the rest of the Republicans are on board with that issue. And I think it's driven by the fact that this past election, even though the Republicans and, and, and Tate Reeves won the gubernatorial election, the turnout was low on both sides. I think they, they are, we're seeing fewer and fewer people participate in the process. And so we ought to do all we can to involve more people in the voting process. And if that means... Uh, restoring people's right to vote, no matter uh, what crime, I mean, you know, expanding the, the list of crimes, that's great. But the other thing Republicans are talking about that they've never wanted to talk about, they've act- they're actually talking about early voting. And so the idea of having early voting, uh, that makes all the sense in the world like as no well. No excuse absentee no voting? No excuse absentee voting. They actually, I, I don't know if we will pass it, but, but we've never been able to have a real conversation about it. So that's happening, too. The idea is that this country is built on this electorate. If people don't participate in the electoral process by by choosing leaders, uh, having a voice on issues, then we can't survive as a government. We can't survive as a nation unless we have people voting and participating in the process. And so retarding that process makes no sense. Expanding that process means we are, are doing something about the future of our, our, our country. All right. Well, Representative Robert Johnson, House Minority Leader, thank you for taking some time to join us on that issue this week. Thank you. I enjoyed it. 
News is all around us, and Mississippi Edition is the best way to stay informed about your community and what's happening across the state. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us weekdays at 8.30 a.m. for a half an hour of in-depth discussions about important issues affecting your life. Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio, or you can also find us online at mpbonline.org and on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get straight to the point with views from both sides of the aisle. We now welcome Austin Barber and Brandon Jones back to our MPB studios. Austin is a Republican strategist and founder of the Clearwater Group. Brandon is an attorney and former Democratic member of the Mississippi House of Representatives. Gentlemen, last week's roundtable was, shall we say, a little spirited. So I hope you brought that energy back with you. Welcome to Ad Issue. Thanks for having us. Hey, y'all. Good to be here. All right. So... One of the biggest developments this past week to come out of this session is potential legislation to address felony disenfranchisement. Uh, Currently, conviction for one of any 22 felonies can cause someone to lose their right to vote. Um, That 22 is an expanded list based on an AG's opinion. Um, And essentially, that that disenfranchisement is permanent. There are some mechanisms to get it restored, but I think those can fairly be described as inaccessible for many. Um, the constitutionality of this disenfranchisement provision has been subject to two federal court cases. One was a 14th Amendment argument. It did not get taken up by the Supreme Court. The other is an Eighth Amendment um, argument uh, for, um, you know, unjust punishment, uh, cruel and unjust punishment. That was listed, heard by the Fifth Circuit last month. Brandon, I'm going to start with you. Um, we were talking, this has been something, especially Democrats have been interested in a long time, restoring voting rights. So how do you feel about lawmakers, especially in a Republican-led House, kind of looking to seriously take up this issue? Well, it's a, it's a very positive development. I think um, just so that listeners have some context, this is a vestige of the 1890 Constitution, um, which we all know is a Jim Crow Constitution and written with uh, voter suppression of black people in mind. And that's part of where this comes from. That's the history of it. We're one of about 10 states now who still has some form of, uh, and, and, and ours is the most, I think, overwhelming disenfranchising uh, provision in a constitution. Because to your point a moment ago, you can't get that right back even after you've served your uh, time in prison paid back whatever debt you may have had, even if it was a nonviolent. If you go to jail right now for felony timber larceny, you lose your right to vote forever. Um, Unless. Uh, there are two things. You mentioned two things. So one of them is a two-thirds vote of the legislature, which if you ever watch our legislature, hardly ever happens. Those bills come through the Judd B. Committee and are almost always DOA. Um, or the governor can pardon you. So it's kind of who you know at the upper echelons of state government. So it's very rarely used. Um, so look, I, I think it's a wonderful thing to look at this. This, this was a, a bad idea that was written at a time when our culture was different, when our, our country and our state was uh, interested in uh, preventing a certain class of people from voting. And so we, we should be paying attention to this. Now, it's, it's enshrined in the Constitution, That means if you want to change it, it's going to take a two-thirds vote. So it's a pretty big threshold they have to clear. But, yeah, I'm glad they're looking at it. Which is why, um, to to, to pitch over to you, Austin, which is why um, we hear Speaker White has kind of charged some of his leadership to do so, and that includes Price Wallace, who chairs the Constitution Committee, because to Brandon's point, is going to have to come up to a a constitutional amendment. So uh, 
Well, on your side, Austin, like what I mean, what what is I guess what is the impetus now for Republican leadership to take up this issue? Well, um, I would say this sounds like this is a bill that's going to that's going to uh, run through the House side and then we'll see what the Senate does. I hadn't heard many conversations. I hadn't heard a lot of conversations about this period. When you said you wanted to talk about this, I needed to go sort of get educated on it. And um, Representative Kabir Kareem. Uh, who I think is from the Golden Triangle, Columbus, I believe, Brandon, yeah. uh, is obviously been working on this issue for a while. And it's apparent that Speaker White, I read his quote, I'm not, there's no private conversations. This is a quote from the Mississippi Today. He says this is an issue that has been discussed and been talked about by members and one we're going to, you know, we're going to take a look at. So I, I, I trust Jason White's word. And certainly it appears that there are Judd B. Chairman Kevin Oran and Constitution Chairman Price Wallace are having conversations about this. And I'm sure they're conversing with with Representative uh, Kareem and, and, and others who find that this issue is important. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd want to understand <clears throat> just sort of from a political hack side, th- sort of the constitutional aspect. Does this have to go to the ballot, Brandon? I, walk, walk us through if this passes. OK, this is signed into law. What does this what does this mean? What's the process for this? Yeah. So to amend our state constitution um, currently, because it's it's changed recently based on Supreme Court rulings a couple years ago, because we used to have a petition Mm -hmm. uh, process um, to amend it now requires a two thirds vote of the members of the legislature. Um, And then anything that's passed by that legislature and survives that vote is put as it's worded when it's passed okay. to voters at the next statewide election. And that's when you get that situation and, and where voters is that have a to, majority vote by voters. It's, is it's, it a 60%, two thirds. What's the, what's it the has threshold to be there? a majority of folks who vote in that election. And so under vote can be significant. Oh um, yeah. If, yeah. I got it. People vote in the presidential race and they vote for Roger Wicker's race and they don't vote in the other. I got the you. electioneering component of, a, a issue like that on the ballot is telling people go all the way to the bottom of your ballot. But, but, no, I, but no, I would no. say, listen, I, I, um, good, good for the speaker for listening to, um, all, all of the delegation, Republicans, Democrats, black, white, young, old, uh, rural, urban. And this is an issue because I will say as a Republican, I think for nonviolent criminals, okay. You know, felons who haven't done things to children, nonviolent ones, if they have served their time, they have paid their price, um, and you know a certain time window has lapsed since they're off probation or whatever. You come out of jail, you're on, you know, you're on probation, or Brandon's going to tell me the, the, the proper word, and then there's another little period in there to make sure you haven't messed up again. And you're nonviolent. I have. I don't have any issues with this. And and obviously that's the mentality of a lot of Republicans in the House. I, I guess. Yeah. So my, we'll, we'll see. That becomes if this, a question. Well, that, I think that also becomes part of the, becomes part of the question because you mentioned a kind of like a, a checklist there, right? So I imagine um, if the speaker's taking this up and he's you know telling Republican leadership, hey, let's 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 address this. The questions are then going to become okay. What what are the standards, right? Is it you've paid your? I mean, you, you've 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 um, ended your sentence, you're on parole. Do you have to pay all your fines back before you can, you know, before reenfranchisement, you know, yeah, occurs? You so, I mean, so, but I think those are going to be the questions that are really going to be at the meat of this, Brandon. Right? Yeah, yeah. So different states have tackled this in different ways. And there is there is one thing the legislature could do without amending the Constitution. One thing it could do would be to say, look, we're only going with what is in the Constitution. We're not going to go with this list of 22 
felonies enumerated by an attorney general's opinion. And so there are actually there's legislation out there that says, look, we're limiting it to what the Constitution says, not the attorney general's interpretation. Now, that may have some constitutional. I could see lawsuits creeping up about whether or not that could pass muster. But that's one thing that the state could potentially do now is just to say we're only sticking to the letter of the law there. Um, When you get to how they could navigate the constitutional amendment, they could take the whole thing out. They could just say, we are removing this this thing that did this. Another way to do it, and you guys have mentioned it, um, you can have a situation where once someone has served their time, then that's it. You could do it where someone must serve their time and pay any fines, and then that could be it. And states have done that where you have to have a, a, a pay penalty. Um, and then... I guess I guess that would be the main well, way. There could be a window in there too. You you serve your time, you pay your you know you pay your fines or whatever it is, and then there's a window of hey you gotta you gotta be a, a good citizen for a day or a thousand days or whatever it is. I mean, but but that's the minutia that the legislature will debate if this if this bill actually finds its way in committee I, and on the floor. What I was just going to say, we're talking about HCR four. And, and what this bill would do, this is Representative Kareem's mm-hmm. bill, it would do what we just talked about. Serve your time, pay your fines, and it also only applies to nonviolent. Nonviolent. Okay. And real quick, this is a short answer kind of situation, but um, does this happen? Is there an appetite for this without these two cases being, you know, in the court system, in the federal court system, and raising all these questions over the last, you know, five, six years? I'm not sure. And, okay. and I'll say this. My day job is with an outfit called the Southern Poverty Law Center and Southern Poverty SPLC Action Fund. Um, we, we are one of the litigants and we're, we're actually not litigants. We're one of the attorneys um, in the case. that's currently before the Fifth Circuit. Um, you know, this is not, as you mentioned before, not the first time this has been a court issue. So I think you could make a case that this is just a well-founded effort on the speaker's part. But certainly there is a case looming. Mm-hmm. All right. Awesome. Anything to add? No. All right. No. I look forward to watching the debate at the Capitol. So we've been discussing felony disenfranchisement, and Brandon mentioned the origins, the objectives of it, um, why there might be an appetite to reexamine it. Uh, That brings me to this little pivot. Um, uh, I'm old enough to remember the 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 2012 election. Um, The postmortem for that election, it's the election that Mitt Romney lost to to Barack Obama uh, when Barack Obama was uh, reelected for a second term. Uh, the, the postmortem from the Republican Party, if I remember correctly, um, focus on questions like how do we make the tent bigger, right? Um, how can we attract more diversity? How can we be more inclusive? I, I remember those conversations pretty, pretty um, succinctly. Succinctly. So, uh, twelve years later, those have kind of become Austin buzzwords, um, four-letter words to some major thought leaders in the Republican Party nationally and here in Mississippi. I can think of the auditor, his open desire to squelch DEI programs at state universities, and of course, um, representative. Representative Becky, Bur- uh, Becky Curry uh, has a bill now which kind of makes more sweeping restrictions to DEI. So, Austin, I mean, I guess I'm going to have to ask what, ha- what happened. Like, how did we get from 2012 with this idea of looking at that, that election and saying we need to diversify, we need to be more inclusive, to those <laughs> concepts becoming what they are? Well, I worked on the 2012 campaign in Boston for, for Mitt Romney, and I don't ever remember us saying, hey, let's come up with programs that divide America more than they bring us together. Yeah, re- Republicans, no different than Democrats. We have to find ways to broaden um, broaden our tent, get more folks who believe in the ideals that, re- that Republicans believe in, limited government, uh, you know, giving more rights to uh, 
uh, to citizens. And and look, I think we just went through an issue um, that I, I hope if it passes, um, those individuals who find uh, the disenfranchisement issue as one of their top ones will look and go, hey, that Jason White guy, man, he's all right. Uh, Delbert Hoseman, Tate Reeves, whoever it is that, that ends up championing that and passes it. I hope that's how they, they will look at Republicans. I'm talking from my side. Brandon will, will have his chance here in a of second. Of course, of course. And he'll have good points to make. Um, but I think that's what we have to, to, to focus on. And I, and, um, when, when, and I looked at Chad White's report. Uh, and I looked at what he did, and he was he was looking at how are these dollars, uh, these DEI dollars, being spent uh, at college campuses in Mississippi, and he found that twenty three million. Not all those were state taxpayer dollars. Some of those were grant dollars. Some of those were federal taxpayer dollars. But tens of millions of Mississippi taxpayer dollars were, were being spent on programs that. I think, you know, sort of sane people like me, I, I kind of think I'm a common sense guy, would think those are more divisive than they are to bring us together. And I think what's the most important thing for me and what I teach my two children and what my wife teaches our two children is, look, how do we find a way to make sure everybody feels included, everybody's got the best chance to succeed in life, and that's what I'm focused on. And and I, I would agree with Shad. I hadn't seen Becky Curry's bill, I'm sorry, but I would agree with Shad and what some other states are doing across the country that – Many of these DEI programs are tearing us apart versus bringing us together. And that's just my very honest uh, opinion on the issue. Brandon, I'll just let you go ahead and respond to that. Yeah. um, If any of our listeners are getting whiplash from us going from, you know, (laughs) (laughs) removing an 1890 Jim Crow uh, provision from our state constitution to responding to Becky Curry and Shad White, who want to, you know... um, focus on um and this issue it, it, then i understand I'm, I'm 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 sympathetic to that um dei uh diversity equity and inclusion th- these programs date back to the 1960s this is another one of those kind of smorgasbord of issues that have been popularized in recent years um to be divisive i mean that's why that's where i would say the division is austin this was a fairly benign accepted thing within corporate and the rest of university and american life until we decided to weaponize it. Um, What it is in its basics is an effort to create a framework that encourages fair treatment and full participation of people who have been historically marginalized, who have been historically discriminated against. It's not just about race. A lot of the most successful DEI programs in America have dealt with veterans who are entering the workforce with PTSD or people who have physical disabilities. So disabilities, yeah. And how how they're cohorts in their labor force respond to them and help make sure that they're included and a welcome part. Um, And so I think this is just another effort to enrage a base of a party that is fed off of rage. I mean, you, you started with the 2012 autopsy. I have tremendous respect for a lot of the people who were part of that. I've always respected my colleague Austin for his efforts to make his, you know, to make his party more diversified. I think that's been genuine efforts. Um, and I know a lot of, you know, people that Austin's work with feel that way. They lost the war. I mean, you asked a question. The reason is all those efforts to do that lost. This is now the cult of Trump. This is now a rage manufacturing association. And so Shad White 
he's a state auditor. It's hard to get attention as a state auditor. Um, one of the ways you get attention as a state auditor is to throw out red meat. That's what this is. I don't think it's substantive. Shad went to Harvard. <laughs> Shad's probably sat through DEI courses before, if we're being honest. Um, this is a rebel-rousing effort. This is kind of in the spirit of Ross Barnett. I, I don't think there's anything real here. Oh, man. Go ahead, Austin. Wait, yeah, cause, cause, I mean, I mean but, I, listen, but to his point, I mean, is 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 but you can't throw, but you can't but you can't throw Ross Barnett out and 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 rage. I mean, th- there are there are uh, and you and I are friends, and you know I respect you. But there's sometimes that I disagree with you. I'm going to disagree with you here. Um, the, Shad White is the state auditor. And it is his job as state auditor um, to make sure that our taxpayer dollars are being spent in a in a in in an appropriate manner. Now you can argue about whether he should get into decisions that are made at colleges about this course or that course, but uh, he's doing what he thinks is his job. And I'm not going to get into all of the um, the aspects of of DEI and 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 some of the things that. I'm looking at sort of a, a tweet thread that Shad talked about some some specifics because I just don't really want to do that. Um, I'm glad he I'm glad he he brought up some but, of these but issues. At that point, you said appropriately. Does is, I mean is the job of the auditor when when you when you define appropriately is it is it appropriate by law or is it appropriate by ideology? Is I mean is there any type of ideological kind of um, uh, schism here? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think every elected official, in some ways, they're going to wear, um, they're going to have some ideology on their shoulder that maybe biases them a little bit in, in what they do. But ultimately, I think they're trying to do things in the right way. And I know that's what Chad White's doing. But, you know, there there are aspects of of uh, of DEI programs that are, that are being done at my alma mater of Ole Miss, his alma mater of Ole Miss. That just make me think, man, I, I just don't like that. I, I think it is more divisive than it is inclusive. We need to be looking at programs. We need to be looking at our job numbers, our education numbers for all of our students. We need to be looking at what Delta Health Alliance is doing um, in Washington County, in the Leland School District, in the Deer Creek School District, in the Hollandale School District, where they're taking those kids, the vast, probably 99% African-American kids, and they are making those kids have some of the best reading scores and graduation scores in the state so that those kids can have an opportunity just like my kids have growing up in in in, in Jackson. I think that's what I really want to focus more on. But this is the question that you posed to us today, and that's why we're talking about it. Yeah, well, and to, to that point, I do want to ask you this. I mean, as someone, as Brandon has mentioned, as someone who has made honest efforts to to, to diversify the party, to be more inclusive, um, I mean, and, and you, make, you, you made your points about the programs themselves. So you know, as someone with, with, with that objective in mind, you know, are, is there a concern that the thought leaders in the party, to Brandon's point about about rage baiting, that they're taking these words that have real meaning and that you I mean, that the Republican Party in its 2012 postmortem and said these are legitimate kind of concepts we need to consider. And they've taken them. They made them in the four letter words that maybe make achieving that a goal more difficult. But I think there are aspects of DEI programs and colleges. We're talking about Mississippi right now that do piss me off. You said four-letter words. I think I can say that, and I just did. They do make me mad. I do dis- disagree with. That doesn't mean that I am not for every, every Mississippian having the absolute best chance that they can. 
to graduate from high school, to go to college if that's what they want to do, to get married, to have kids, to to have a, to have live the American dream. But that doesn't mean that I can't be or Shad White or Becky Curry or whomever can't be frustrated about certain aspects of um, the, these programs on college campuses. Does that mean that all the programs are bad? No. I don't. I don't know all the aspects, but but right. some of the some of the the details that I see, they, they they do frustrate me. That doesn't mean that I'm a bad guy. That doesn't mean that I'm right. raging and angry. This means I think that's that that we're, we're. I don't like what they're doing, and I'll be quiet, Brandon. Yeah, and we're talking about yeah, that's talking you about you, but question. but Brandon. I mean, you. I mean, looking at it, you you're the one that brought up the whole rage baiting thing. What I mean. When you hear Austin say that, what's your response? Well, look, I don't doubt Austin's sincerity. I never do. I doubt Shad's. I mean, if you look at Shad's Twitter feed, he's a rebel rouser. I mean, this is kind of his shtick. Shad White has not done anything all that significant as, tre- as, as auditor. The reason we know about him is because he kind of likes to stir up the hornet's nest. He's writing a book right now about an ongoing prosecution that his office got started. I mean, this is a guy who likes attention. So that – but let's leave that alone. Um I, I I know Austin's being sincere, and I'm sensitive to the fact that we're three white guys talking about cultural sensitivity. We live in a, in a world that's that's increasingly multicultural, and part of a full education is knowing how to live in that world. And And part of the reason these programs are based at universities is because at predominantly white institutions— Ole Miss is one. The name Ole Miss <laughs> harkens back to something. Um, at predominantly white institutions, it's critical for the overall experience of students that students of color have a space and have a, have a place to feel comfortable. And that doesn't happen unless you're deliberate about it. Now, we can sit here and pat ourselves on the back and say we've arrived and we know how to do this stuff. We haven't. And so you kind of have to be deliberate about saying, you know what, I've got I've to get some history I've got to get some comfort level dealing with something that might be different, dealing with people that might be different. And so I think I think that's the the spirit of these programs. I'll give you the final word. Ten seconds. Since I was on campus as a student in the mid to late 90s, I will say I was always smart enough to stay at Ole Miss for five years. You would I'm sure you would agree with me. We should be deliberate to make sure that every student feels like they're a part of Ole Miss. But we shouldn't divide students to, to get to that. And that's that's just that's where I am. on this. But it doesn't diminish me and you to be sensitive about the other. I mean, you and I are part of the predominant class in in the area where we live. White men have run Mississippi and have since way before you and I got here. You kind of have to be deliberate about pausing for a minute and making space for other folks that have entered our society. And people like you and I typically don't do that very well on our own. I I, I don't disagree, but I don't have to teach um, any any kid, black or white, that they're good or bad because of what. But that's not what these programs do, though. That's I think that's a misrepresentation of the programs, and I'll bet nobody at all Miss is teaching it's, that. It's too, I hope that's not what it is. I hope I hope that you're right on that. I just want to figure out a way that that kids who come to Ole Miss who have the biggest freshman class, they're breaking records every year, or Mississippi State or Delta State, can find a place where they feel comfortable and get a good education, and it doesn't divide others. That's that's just my whole point on this. All right. So we had a reasonable debate on this. Yeah. Brandon oh. didn't get too mad. <laughs> no, not at all. All right. Well, we're going to make a, a major pivot here, our last our last bit, and we won't spend too much time on it. Uh, but another measure has already made its way through the House. Uh, that's online sports betting. Uh, it, it happened two weeks ago. It allows online sports books to partner with brick-and-mortar casinos. They each get a stake in the game. I think part of – I think – how much stake is kind of maybe a bit part of the, the debate going on. So just quick thoughts on this. Is this a logical next step 
when it comes to sports betting in Mississippi, which has been around since 2018, or considering the risk with online sports betting, is this something that could potentially invite trouble or even maybe pose a threat to traditional casinos, Austin? No, it's absolutely logical. I mean, look, look what, who we like. this is happening right now. It's just happening in, in a black market, and it has been for, for a long time. Uh, even today with, the, with you know, technology as advanced it is, you've got offshore casinos where people are finding a way to, to get around the law to, 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 bet on a, uh, to bet on a ball game through an offshore casino. Um, this needs to happen. This is good. It's not, it's not like a, a make-or-break thing for casinos. This is not a, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in new tax revenues that's going to come in, but it is new tax revenues that will come in. Um, it, it's a good thing. The vast, vast, vast majority of brick-and-mortar casinos in Mississippi are for this. Uh, there'll be a successful program that's run. We're not the first state in the country that's doing it. It happens all over the country. This is a this is a this is a good thing, um, and so it'd be really interesting to to see Representative Casey, your chairman of the mm-hmm. Gaming Committee in the House, has worked uh, very hard on this. I know Senator David Blunt is the chairman. Uh, of gaming in the Senate has also been working hard on this. It obviously passed the House, as you said. Yep. It's in it's in the Senate's lap. But this is a good thing. It's a natural step. Uh, the, again, the vast majority of casinos are for this. Um, so I'm I think it's I think it's I'm glad the House has passed. And this. to Austin's point, I mean, gaming joint gaming committee meetings all throughout the fall to kind of get to where we are, Brandon. Uh, you grew up on the coast. Uh, what I mean is, does it does it enough? Does it do enough uh, for brick and mortar casinos? Look, I, yeah, I grew up uh, on the coast, and we've been talking about gaming f- my whole life. I mean, there's been a debate going on about gaming. Um, I think there's an inevitability to it. I think Austin's right. We, there's there's a certain uh, energy behind this. The rest of the world is doing it. It's a huge industry. Um, the NFL, the, the biggest uh, sports league in, in the world, um, went from taking a very strong position against to now they are sponsored by uh, online gaming. And uh, just had a Super Bowl in Vegas. Just had a Super Bowl in Vegas. So I think this is where the world is going. I'm reminded of the old Baptist preacher that I heard during the height of the original casino debate saying, you know, I didn't believe in evolution until we started fighting about gambling, but they started out in the water, then they moved on land, and now they're online. So, <laughs> so But listen, every casino can go have their own strategy for how they want to do this versus they want to have a poker room, whether they want to have all blackjack tables or or more slot machines. So every casino is going to have the opportunity to go partner with an online, I'm not going to name any, any online uh, sports book. So they, they, they can go at this as, as heavy or, or soft as they possibly want. It's just a, it's a business decision for the casinos. They'll all be treated the same on this. So I don't think there, I don't think there's any, well, this can help one casino over the other. It's just about the strategy um, and partnerships that that they make and 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 moving forward on this if it passes. Yeah, sounds like, so. Sounds like we have a consensus on this one. All right. Yeah. I mean, and, and at look, least in, at least in the inevitability of it. And, and we notorious we notoriously have kind of a puritanical legislature. You know, I mean, well, not in their own private practices, but in how they vote. Um, but I thought it was notable. We all were around when some of the gambling bills originally passed. Um, this one passed the House ninety-seven to fourteen. So it's it's kind of it, it's kind of taken off, you know. Nobody's really debating the morality of it. And I notice we're also having beer conversations. People yeah. listening might not know we have blue laws in the state of Mississippi to this day. We're even even tackling that. So um, I don't know. Very very interesting postmodern moment we're having over there. 
All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you. This has been at issue on MPB Think Radio, a weekly discussing about discussion about the 2024 legislative session. At issue can also be streamed on the MPB Public Media app, or you can download the podcast from any of the usual podcast sites. I'm Michael Gidry with Brandon Jones and Austin Barber. From all of us at MPB, thank you for listening.